Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel, uh, where Paul indulges in himself really into um, exploring consciousness. Really, I, this, that's really all I see the reason for being. And there is a lot of uh, consciousness data to explore, as I think all you will agree. Um, and it's kind of a diary as well, so that's why it's that's why I say it's indulgent, really. Anyone who doesn't know me and listens to this, if you do continue to listen to it, that's fantastic. Maybe you sense I've got something um, that you will find interesting. So I'm just I'm just fascinated by the fact that I can so easily put this out to the world with the possibility of anyone being able to listen to it. If they get to know, you know, they use CastBox cast and um, somehow put the word Pablo's channel in there. Um, so a very few, I've got a few people, fans on there. Whether they listen to my stuff, I don't know. I haven't got many comments to show that. But uh, Halli Ho! I am... Um, uh, as I say, I've just I'm just learning and I'm enjoying uh, being a podcaster. It's a, it's 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 uh, uh, an interesting voyage being a podcaster. So <clears throat> anyway, I've just I've done a reading for a long time, um, and I'm reading my old friend Gerald Hurd, who I've always found a fascinating thinker. And um, I've already read half the book. Uh, it's called A Dialogue in the Desert. Um, but I thought I'd read... It's not many not many pages. Um, I'll stop doing the end, will There's, there's uh, 60, 70, 72 pages. No, uh, 74 pages. But, uh, yeah, and that's quite big writing as well. So I think I could get this, get through this, um, in one one recording, hopefully. So I'm going to stop my talk. I had a lovely day, by the way, with a guy called Sean, Sean Lynch from the Dingle. Had a lovely bike ride to Hoy Lake, West um, Kirby, and a bit of the inland parts. Really lovely. Uh, and saw Hill Behind. I didn't get on Hill Behind again. Because I attempted it with my dad a few weeks before. But uh, the tide was coming in. In this case, the tide was going out. But uh, still had quite a bit to do. And we had our bikes. So, um, anyway. Enough of that. But Hill Behind's an interesting place. As well as this book will be, hopefully. I'm, it's now that today the date is the 20th of September 2020. Uh, we are, looks like we are into the second wave of the COVID. Um, and Tuesday, apparently, the lockdowns, the local lockdowns are going to be more enforced where it's, where the figures are most high. Um, I'm still on the fence in terms of think, is it real? Is it not real? I play the official role of going with it when I'm out there but really I don't know because sadly I just do not trust this world that's the sad state of affairs the people in power the system it's not an untrustworthy type of world because it's very it's not very transparent how it acts and, you know. anyway 
four minutes in and we still haven't even started the book. Okay, let's stop. I found on YouTube uh, a tune called Dune. Beautiful Middle Eastern music. So I thought that would be a perfect backdrop to this podcast. So here we go. Um, a dialogue in the desert by Gerald Hurd. And here's the music. This book was originally uh, published prior to 1923 and represents a reproduction of an important historical work maintaining the same format as the original work. So there you go. A Dialogue in the Desert. Uh, 1923. It's going back a bit. And it was, uh, this one was published by Harper and Brothers. New York and London. So this says here, A Dialogue in the Desert. I must put the volume a bit down. Um, Dialogue in the Desert, copyright 1942 by Gerald Hurd. Printed United States. So, 1942. Sounds about right. So Gerald Hurd was really getting into his religious uh, observations with uh, Huxley, wasn't it? Anyway. Here we go, finally, five minutes in, sorry about the babble, but we're going to go straight into reading. Introduction. The basic themes of history, each age has to render and assent, accent in its own vernacular. Each epoch makes its own version of the supreme eponymous character in its social hereditary. Caesar, because of his gifts and his circumstances, became the type of the soldier who shatters liberty to give efficiency. So Dante, who lives in a period of political libertinage, libertinage, L-I-B-E-R-T-I-N-A-G-E, writes the the Monarchia and puts the assassins of Julius in the deepest pit of his abominable hell. Even a greater poet has also to use the Caesar symbol. He, however, is living in an epoch when men were beginning again to rise against the masters who promised so much and gave such sorry performance. The kings who called themselves godlike but behaved like beasts. So in Julius Caesar, Shakespeare makes the proto-emperor a vainglorious epileptic, only allowed to appear in order to usher in the noble assassin who perishes at the hands of Caesar's hounds because he is too splendid to be understood by the people whom Caesar and his lackey, Antony, could always buy with largesse or intoxicate simply with rhetoric. The authors living in the dawn of this day. Sorry, there was a bit of a, an advert came in there. I've got to watch out for that. Anyway, here we go. So, the authors living in the dawn of this day of dictatorships, such as the German Momensen or Momsen, that's uh, M-O-M-M-S-E-N, 
again glorify Caesar. Swords, not twelves, twelves, build civilization. The armed arbitrary will of one man, not the free cooperation of a people, is the source of all construction and creation. <coughs> there is, however, a more enigmatic and more influential figure than the Caesars. That is the Christs. He too has been interpreted as each age could understand him. The Good Shepherd in the simple drawings in the catacombs becomes in turn the protector of the empire. The awe-inspiring Pantocrator that's P-A-N-T-O-C-R-A-T-O-R the uh, awe-inspiring Pantocrator in the shining mosaics on the imperial churches and palaces. The terrible judge in the fanatic dooms of the medieval cathedrals. The natural and sensible teacher of the age of reason and good sense. The romantic reformer who dies for his faith in the romantic revival. Then, in our own time, to the liberals, the liberal who only wanted to free men from their superstitious reverence for the rigid letter and the dead hand of the past. And finally, to the modernists, who decided that he was a self-deluded enthusiast. One who by an historical accident gave rise to workable faith. The latter four of these interpretations are all to be found in usage today. But none is actually ours. They are all, even the latest, past pictures. We have to make our own. Nor is that all required of us. Rather, each one of us has to make his own. Contemporary knowledge, anthropological, psychological, psychophysical, is far greater and less coordinated than, than at any past time. In the light of such information, each of us has to try and describe to himself how he believes a great spirit would behave while seeking to discover for itself its message. Man imputes himself. Studies of the Christ are studies of the student. So it must be, but often the very inadequacies of a sketch have been the occasion whereby a real master was roused to make an adequate rendering. So may it be. That was the uh, introduction. So here we go, into the main thing. A dialogue in the desert. The speaker in this dialogue, the lonely voice of the desert, is the Christ of the three temptations as outlined in the Gospels. The second voice is the dark echo of, and reaction from, Jesus, 
own authentic inspiration. He who said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, does not seem to have been one who would have needed to see in the desert an incarnate tempter. That spirit of deceit spoke in his own mind and was answered there, although in the closing section it has allowed Oso to find actual voice and form. The lonely voice, the first heard in this dialogue, is indicated by italic type, the dark echo by Roman type, and by blank lines before and after. More than a whole month now, I wonder whether, question mark, whether it really helps. They say the mind becomes clear and the will passive, and you can see not only what you should do, but things as they actually are. I wonder, I wonder, this intense fasting it does make things seem clearer and different, but more real. The mirage looks more like actual water. What would it look like if one was as thirsty as one is hungry? Would not craving then make it look maddenly real? One would go stumbling toward it, half knowing it was nothing, half still striving to believe it was life. Vision comes to the fasting, they say. Is that all? Should not the cleared eye see this desert world, uninfested by man, unstained by life, not as empty and desolate, but as it was before man fell and nature was ruined? As God sees it still, Dazzlingly beautiful, very good. But the mirages shimmer too fiercely. One must keep one's senses steady, clear. It's hard to know whether you are not giddy when you watch them. Better concentrate on something nearer, in the middle distance. That piece of valley which I've watched the last month as the mountain shadows swing across it. One knows another day is over. That is steady and yet moving. I will watch and wait. There too, though, vision gets confused. The dust devils are moving up and down. That one was so faint I thought it was eye strain which made the slope the other side become vague. This next one, really the Bedouin, are right, are right, they are like angry dancing dervishes. His angel winds, winds, his messengers are flash. Are they? Could they be the efforts of some de defiant force to materialise and hurl itself in physical rage against the solitary? which dares trespass on the desolation where banished. 
they wander seeking rest and finding none? No. The middle distance is as confusing as the mirage. Horizon. Fasting is a test. That is clear. You must first see if you can keep steady and quiet under this throbbing strain and hold against this deadly sinking. I must look at something quite close and definite in the cool shadow. These small stones will do, hard and smooth and plain. I'll keep looking at them. There's a clear symbol of the patience God requires of us. I've seen them in the river, worn down by years of its flow. Once the river, cool and fruitful, must have passed here. How long ago, only the Creator knows. These stones were worn smooth and left here until every tree, grass and shrub vanished and they alone remain baked by the incessant sun, shaped by river and then baked by sun. Like the small cakes the Essenes used to give us at sundown. How good they tasted after the day's labour. There, the stone has cheated one with a potence of bread as the air with its mirrors cheated one with an illusion of water. Can't one escape illusion? Even in the desert must dream and fantasy, stirred up by appetite like mud, pollute the clear water of vision. Would one be let starve to death if I became too weak and couldn't cross that stretch of sand? The belt of rocky ground, the ridge, and then go down the long slope which leads at last to the river, back to the cornfields. The granaries would help come. There's not a bird in that hard blue sky. Yes, there is one, a vulture. He's no giver, no messenger. He's a reminder that my fear has sufficient ground to keep him posted. Well, to him, it's a hope. God feeds him, I suppose. And if I starve, then his other creature would be fed, but poorly. Even now, that foot of mine on the stone is getting like his claw. The foot so lean... The loaf-like stone so firm and plump. Wouldn't he, who feeds the carrion bird, feed man, when this his child is seeking his way? At least till the way is found. Then this poor body, gladly the birds may pick the fragments exposed and scattered in one of these ravines where man never comes. Or it's all the same. The birds will get their provender, swinging on some wayside gibbet, catching every idly curious gaze. 
nothing to them all they that pass by, but still worthwhile to the birds. Surely he feeds the hungry if they have faith. The stone that looks so like a loaf, the substance could be changed in a moment. And there would be sweet, strong bread under the rock-like crust, full nourishing crumb. They say God needs only to be asked with absolute faith. If you are doing what he wills, and he provides, make stones that so look like bread, be bread. Why not? But if bread was to have been provided, birds would have brought it. An angel fetched it. You must demand it. Be importunate. You've the right to command. It won't happen unless you do. The people were fed magically in the wilderness. You've an equal right to the same provision. Grammarly can help you write quickly and confidently, so you never have to. You've an equal right to the same provision. Indeed, this is just a test case to see what you are made of. You know why you are here. The ordinary life wouldn't do for you. Getting and spending, they lay waste their powers. That's not the way for spiritual aristocrats. Your family is naturally aloof. You belong to the desert where you walk apart from man and with God. You're here, frankly, and clearly. Now you see your mind is clear. To see whether that meeting is to be kept. God will not fail you, for you know quite clearly that you are his son, and the father doesn't give his son earth when he asks bread. Or lesson when he's deadbeat with starvation. Fancy he sees a loaf only to find it a stone. It would be a shabby trick, even for a cad, to play on his cub. But quite evidently, he does want you to try out your powers. That's the test you're here for. It's as clear as that bun-shaped pedal. You couldn't go on with the Essenes. You saw they were simply waiting about, waiting for something to happen that never does happen. Waiting for a sign, a lead. Yes, they're on the right tack, facing the right way. That's the life, no doubt. The highest life. But they are a camel train, waiting for the leader that knows the way across the desert to the oases. Meanwhile, they wait, and it can't go on. If a new way, a radically new way, is not found soon, well, they won't be let go on leading their simple arrested life much longer. Either the world around them will snuff them out, this protected calm today, you know, is only a lull between storms. This countryside, right out to the desert, 
will be under fire and sword in another giant generation. Or they will simply go out of themselves. They oil used up. No one can wait forever. Hope is a good starter, but only faith wins. And faith that is not simply hope with a halo. Faith that does things, creates things, and no self-illusion about it either. Now there's the point. Yes, your mind was always keen and it was never clearer. Either your father works miracles for his children who trust him as you do and seek him as you have. Or, well, you've been mistaken. Perhaps blasphemous. Perhaps he is not your father and you have presumed. What has gotten clear as that tiny pool of water you drank from at dawn and your drink from at sundown is the choice, the test. Either he is your father and then he provides. You ask as his loved son and he creates for you as he created out of his love the world at the beginning. And then your path is plain. That's why this is so obviously the reason you were driven to come here. You were called to lead the highest and noblest souls among men to follow you to an ever higher life. To follow you where you must attain or all their past effort is futile and must end. To follow you where they and you would forever be safe from accident and disaster. To where you will show the whole world here at last is God's manifest recognition that this is the real way, the life of creative faith, where we and we alone can create by faith our daily bread. You must work this miracle not for yourself, hungry as you are, but for others, for the sake of the new age you were born to initiate, for the sake the safety, the salvation, the triumph of the best men who have lived. Those are scenes to whom you owe so much to bring their wonderful effort to fruition. But you mustn't be afraid or be muddled in your mind. It's clear there's no other possible choice before you. Here and now you must put it to the test and then forever you'll know exactly where you are. You'll be whatever happens, the world's one realist. It's just a simple, straightforward case of either or. Either God is your father and you his beloved son, or he is not your father and you have gained complete sanity and insight by coming into this clear, still loneliness of the desert. If he is your father, then that, then that stone Let's take a clear, concrete case. That water-warm, worn pebble that looks so exactly like, in colour and shape, a perfectly baked loaf becomes what it appears to be, a real loaf. Not much of a miracle, but enough for a living man to go on with, and enough for the hard-toiling scenes to know as a sign 
that you are the leader so long promised. You won't be afraid, will you, to put your faith to the touchstone of fact. You have to take the plunge. That's why you came here. You must decide. God waits your decisive word. Command that stone that it become bread. And lead the Essenes into a land of easy plenty, rich beyond the dreams of gluttony, stones into loaves. Why not then the bitter salt pools into milk, the sand into crystallised honey, and they and I to settle down, the desert an easier acre than the cornfield, eating and sleeping, working magic, and then again feasting, until some king, learning of our secret, should carry us off as men skept bees, and keep us as magicians at his court to feed his armies. We, the first object of his enemies, attack, for till we are destroyed, he is impregnable. Excuses. Just excuses because you haven't the courage to stake your faith. You're afraid the bread won't change at your word. By accident, outwardly it looks so like bread. But its substance, in hard fact, it's only stone. And nothing you can say or do will change it. You haven't the nerve to own that. Yes, I'm weak and dead hungry, but still that's not the real question. I will stick to that. The fact I'm suffering, and yes, wanting bread with all my body. Every appetite is at this moment just one demand, food. That's off the point and I won't be drawn off it by what's irrelevant. Though I drop dead. The question, the only question for my father and so for me, is will the Essenes, will men, all of whom are just as much his children as I, and he just as much their father, though they can't see, he cares a rap or plans a straw for them, will these children be better for this power? A day may come when he will answer their greedy cry, Give them power to make the desert a cornfield. The rock bread, when they will have such plenty that they will burn wheat and pour whole harvests into the barren sea. Will his kingdom have come then? On this, your argument it must. Bread and righteousness are one. Make men rich and comfortable and they will be good and wise. The rich have not been so, but wanton and arbitrary. The comfortable have not aspired, but become slack and gross. I am desperately hungry, but I should be beaten by my test and have sunk to an animal 
if I fell into that trap. I won't be caught in your clever dilemma. Faith demands more than you. Cheap challenger can understand. Bread, yes, won by sweat of the brow. Bread as a transitory means, never as the end. If God does not give me bread and the power to make it and at my demand, then that does not prove either there is no God or I am not his son. He can make these stone loaves. He can also from these stones raise him up as easily fresh sons. You put the test here and now. That's all you can understand. He must save us now or I shall die. The Essenes be scattered and the case go by default. The light will go out and his world sink into everlasting night. You think because the sun sets it will never rise again because you don't know that the sun is infinitely greater than the earth. I know that because the sun sets it will rise again because the earth spins attendant to the sun's sea of glory. As easily can man fall out of the hand of God as can the earth fall out of the light and hold of the sun. It is setting now. Our lives will set. They must set to rise in their fuller power. Bread at will. Could man ever have that and not take bread and the fleshly life it alone can sustain as the end? Wouldn't the spirit in such a heavy grown body be sunk and smothered? This life is a preliminary thing. All this life man must be learning to diet himself for another way of living. It is not easy to learn that. It must demand a drive of energy easily distracted. As he grew the mouth and throat in the womb, useless there, with a life of earthly feeling he should follow here. So now in this closed world he must exactingly grow those spiritual organs so that he may live hereafter. Man does not, cannot live by bread alone. If he does he dies. He lives, he only truly lives by each creative call made on him by his father. That he grow to the full stature of that heavenly life. And if he trusts the creator as his father, then the stone may be turned into bread. But it is not for him, the child, to dictate. Nor is it the choice, as it must seem, to one who is a materialist. Either bread and proof of God or starvation and atheism. But it's surely not less hard and quite as good for the Creator to make the body, which he shaped, able to live without bread when he knows the time has come for it so to live, as it is to make that stone of loaf. While when the soul, when the soul so freed has grown, he can, 
and will release it from the body colour in which he has raised it. The stone can thus remain stone, and he has answered me by feeding me already. A word has come from him, and my hunger is stayed. The stone turned into a loaf would only have fed the body, and in the spirit must have striven on. It would have been daily bread, and then the task of feeding the soul would have still remained. Now, as the sun sets, the dark echo dies away. I feel the strength rising up in me. This, then, is my father's gift. Not daily bread, but bread of the coming day, of the life of the spirit will lead. Yet, it is no far-fetched fancy or delusion. I feel my body not only freed of its craving, but strong. I am breathing in a mysterious life. As I breathe more deeply and quietly, my mind opens to the glory of the Father. I am radiated with his unfailing and eternal strength. This is the bread of life which he gives to me, and I am so I am to give to men. The spirit, filled with this strength, no longer weighed on by the body, instead carries the body tenderly with it. The night has come. I have seen one more step leading to the source of all power. I will drink of the spring, lie down and sleep. Tomorrow I shall be tested and taught more. Dawn again. The same outlook. No revelation yet. Still, I know one thing, and the worst doubt is dead. God is Father, and He can and does supply our needs in many a way which, because we cannot understand, Till it happens, we think impossible. That dilemma, which yesterday seemed so clear that I thought someone spoke it in my ear, I know now was false. There was a third way between this choice either that stone becomes bread. Or God does not care for me and I die. I am alive and I can stoop down and pick up that loaf-like pebble and feel no more the desperate craving which cried in me yesterday. It must be miracled into bread. It can stay stone and God stays, yes. He endures without this proof. For he has proved his power to keep the body alive directly through the spirit. This, I see, is the true proof of his presence. The only sure proof. Stone into bread would have meant that spirit can persist. But only because the body, without which spirit is nothing, is fed with material bread. Now I have been fed my spirit has been fed directly by the Spirit of God. 
I have breathed in the eternal life, and so it is not my body's feeding which proves the reality of spirit, but my spirit's power to upbear the body. It proves, as naught else could, that spirit is not only its own sustainer, but the body's also. What now? It is clear that my hunger-inspired dream of making the beloved Essene safe, a little magic group raised forever above want, that was too crude, too small a fancy, a material rendering of a divine truth. This bread of the coming day, this new power of spiritual sustenance and growth so that heaven begins here on earth, this is no light to be hidden in the desert caves, or only carried in the cities covered under a basket, shared selfishly among the few enlightened, when all the unnumbered peoples sit in night, in cold, in hunger. No, this is a message, good news for the world, the discovery that faith can magic desert pebbles into loaves might have served for the Essenes. To the world, the revelation must be given that there is a way, a method now made known to man whereby he can be sustained and grow spiritually. With material bread, if, sorry, with material bread, if it is present. Or else if it is not, God feeds as he will, never with spectacular revelation. He guides as his immense pre-knowledge can alone guide so perfectly, so unobtrusively, with such consummate skill that man's cooperation is always being tested up to its limit and just not to breaking point. As the spinner draws the thread strongly enough to make it tense and long, sensitively enough so that, though always under the fullest strain, it shall never break. So we are guided and watched every step. But only those who walk with God can be fully aware that they are being guided the rest feel that it is chance. A few others that somehow things fall out so that they learn and grow. God guides and those who know they are his children know they are guided. I have been guided here and sustained here and now when I was looking for my next step and thought it lay deeper in the desert, back to the Essene house in those barren hills by the Dead Sea. I am shown it is not back to the Essenes I am to go. Then whither, this wilderness is a dividing of the ways. He who enters it either goes on until he comes to the Mount of God, and God takes him, or he goes back with a message he has won for the world. Even Johannan came back. That's Y-O-H-A-N-A-N. It is clear I have more to tell. Yes, I must return 
and inform the people that there is a real way. No dead ritual or formalised practice, but an actual method of being in touch, of revivifying, touch with the living God. How shall I catch their ear? If once I can get them to listen, all's well. They are wary, though, and well they may be, of teachers. Those profound authorities who know all the texts and keep themselves honoured and comfortable. Who the Jews of their sacred traffic. Those scornful Puritans who show how superbly unattractive is that goodness which is exactly moral in every convention and ruthlessly exacting in every case where only generosity can plead. How tell the ordinary puzzled, kindly man jostled into unkindness, hurry into baseness and violence? How now catch his ear and tell him there is a real way, a new path open to God, and that this way is one, not of weary formalism or harsh precision, but a way to reality and happiness for him and his harassing and harassed neighbours, whoever they are, wherever they are. All the words are so warm, debased, exploited. The people's attention must be arrested. It's the only way. Somehow they must be stuck. They are dulled and stupefied, and after all, have played so largely into the very hands which have tricked them. Why blame the official church and also the austere nonconformists? Here is the world's wisest tradition and the modern man's best effort to bring that tradition directly into practice. If one is functionally formalised and the other an exhibition of shallow scrupulosity, scrupulosity, whose fault is that? The people wanted this kind of performance. They could only be impressed with appearance. One can't honestly censure the showing off. Though one may wish it was more than dressing up and face deep. What is clear, however, is that if you have something to give them, as you have, you must learn how to put it up to them. Well, it's out of the question that you will be let have any official authority, at least for years, and then only if you're dead at heart and no longer want to use it well, and for them, you'd have as poor a chance of being let in with the UNCO guide, that's a UNCO, G-U-I-D. And even if you got in with them, what would you get? An uneasy grudge respect from the ordinary man who dislike you all the more because he was ashamed of disliking so intensely holiness? Holiness as you demonstrated it, and he couldn't deny. 
No, you've got to demonstrate in quite another way. A demonstration original. Daring. Because it will have to show you show you are on a new line and yet it will also have to show your line starts from the same rock of the root of the, the one true religion a new start as all the great prophets have made you must throw down your challenge so they can't mistake it or overlook it where there's only one place you must start your new message in the temple Their God will show he recognises you, and if you receive divine recognition there, their only will will priest and Pharisee have to accept your credentials. While the people mass there, think of the effect on them. Think of how the news would spread out like a speeding ripple throughout the countryside, throughout the world. The promised prophet has come. The frost would indeed be broken, and a spring tide of new hope would run over hill and valley from village to town. At a stroke half, your mission would be done. You know the place. It's curiously like this crag you're standing on. You remember climbing up there, when he used to be hanging round the temple until you could crouch on that parapet and look sheer down into the dense court its huge area carpeted with the crowd that crowd from all over the world all come to seek life and who of them finding it poor pen sheep milling round driven shouted at least didn't you wish to call out stop stop look listen but then you yourself didn't know what to tell them you couldn't then even catch their poor blind interest for a moment now you see them again there they are yet at that at this very moment all master all blindly seeing all looking for water and bread and being given mirage and stones. Now you know what they need and how to give it them. This is your post, your coin of vantage, that's C-O-I-G-N. Here's your taking off point. Here's where and how the great news can and can only be launched and start. As the dove out from the ark to a world now to start afresh. You did well to leave the admirable Essene to their pointless toil, their dying routine, dying because they have cut themselves off from life. Your message is for nothing less than the whole eternal people. See, there as at the foot of this cliff, there spread the dense thousands of your race to whom the world's destiny belongs, who are already, as was promised, as teeming as the sands. Every grain down there, a human being, 
face turned up, waiting your message. A harvest of white faces ripe for you to reap. This is a crisis in the world's history. Here's the moment when God, who has rested after creation, at last moves, intervenes, recognises by his support that you are his new word and message to men. The path you have patiently trod has led. You have been guided. There can be no doubt to this spot. Have courage, have faith, cast away fear. Here and now you launch your message to the people. You can't hesitate. You know that those who trust, that every step, even the least important, is laid before them. Prepared, smoothed, graduated. It was for this very occasion that the assurance runs. He gives his angels exact instructions to be about your every movement. <coughs> and even if a precipice yawns in your path, if the ground opens at your feet, you pass serenely on, borne by their power. So, as God's ambassador, go down to his waiting people, sweep down from his throne, sustained and supported by those attendant messengers whose protective power is earnest of his approval. Don't shrink, or you doubt God and doubt his doubt his sending you on over the brink to the immediate salvation of the world through your gospel. And stun them into attention. And dare God to let me fail and so try to force him with the threat that he himself is discredited, silenced by my destruction. Is this the voice of cowardice again? Do I fear he will let me fall and be dashed to pieces? Do I cling to life? No. Life can end for me, should he choose, far more terribly than this thus. It would be an easy way out from all difficulty and misgiving. Either he bears me up, I appear manifestly the man who comes from heaven, the magician who is master of the elements, or all doubt is over. I step straight into death, and the trial has ended for good. I have forced God to stop testing me. This is the last time he shall put me under the strain. I can force his hand. Is that well? Is that courage or cowardice? And the poor people, they see a man step down from the sky into their shrine. Heaven, just above their heads. Has sent its messenger to the place which they are now irremediably convinced is the only place where God sends his word. Will that help them to understand my message? They have to learn God is everywhere. 
Their narrow devotion to this place is fatal to their understanding this mission to mankind. Their pathetic belief that God is in the sky, that is not less fatal. As long as they believe that, and what I should do would confirm it beyond doubt, they will not seek for him where alone he is to be found in their own hearts. They will remain because of what I have done, say what I might, more rooted than ever in their blind arrogance toward the rest of the world. Their blind subservience to their priestly masters who would have them blind and narrow. No, that way too is barred. No stone turns into loaf. No air turns into stare. The spirit must be changed. Always difficult. It is only more hard when the eye is dazzled. God works, but only unmistakably to the enlightened. For the rest, everything that happens seems ordinary, common, trivial. Proof that there is no design or overseeing. But the bread was, after all, not needed. God provided a better and indeed more wonderful way. So too here I refuse to drive him to my self-chosen issue. I see, far from it, being necessary to the news I have to tell. It would stand in the way of men taking it in. And just because they will think they have accepted it, they would never afterwards be able to realise what it really meant. No, God will show me, as he did yesterday, his more hidden, more wonderful, more effective way. I will not dare him, but trust me. That is my answer. I will now go back to my resting place. He again has taught me, and I await his further teaching. Certainly, he has been with me. And was there not another with me? The other voice? Was I not being asked to choose between two ways and two guides? How real that tempting, practical voice was. Harshly definite, seeming at times almost to drown the gentle promptings which answered it and which seemed to rise from an immense distance. The desert silence is full of voices when one has, for long, heard not a human word. Is that voice one of those who speak to me, or is it a human voice, not knowing another man is near? It is a man's voice, <coughs> here in the wilderness. He must be a madman, who has broken away and fled here, desperate. Breaking the solitude in which I must work out my message, my task. I must avoid him, poor creature. I cannot struggle with him. He would certainly kill me, and I should have done him no good. I will wait here, and he will pass on. Pass on to what? He is stumbling on into the deeper desert. The spring I've lived by is the last. Beyond this, he must die. I shall be letting him go to his death. But he's only one hopelessly crazed creature. I have to think of a whole people 
Perhaps already he's done untold damage. Here he is solving all the problems he created. His own scapegoat. But I shall be letting him go to a ghastly death. He can suffer. That cry shows it. He is suffering. I can't let him stumble on to die of thirst. Even if he attacks me. God's love must make me try and point him out the water. I will intercept him. He must be just abreast of the spring, but it's hidden in the cleft, and he'll miss it. There is water. There is water. There to your right, in that crack in the cliff. He's coming on. He can't understand. He's quite desperate. He only hates mankind and would die happy if he could kill the last man. Here in the desert where all else is dead. I read his thought. Here then is death for me. I, who was too fine to take death in great daring with God, carrying his word before all men and to die by the hand of a madman in the desert and only the vulture and he with delight will see it. But what sorrow in that face as it comes nearer. How unbelievably he has suffered. Everything has betrayed him. Man, woman and child have fled him. Beasts run from him. Even the dead world here seems to him drawing away from him. Men now only want to torture him. No child in the dark left by its mother is more frightened, more wretched, more pathetic. Was there ever such pain, sorrow and loneliness? I see now in his eyes, as he comes nearer, the panic-stricken animal with his hunters on the trail. God in your mercy delivered this poor innocent and he stops. He has fallen down. He is calling for help. The night is here again but I shall be best prepared for tomorrow if I stay out longer under the stars. The man sleeps securely in the cleft under my cloak. He is now a child sleeping as one. And I see how we were sent to each other. As I touched him, I felt him wince, and all his muscles packed like stone. His arm, which was round my neck, shut like a vise, and then I felt that glow. I felt pulses of before, but never in full tide as then. It broke out to me like a flood. I felt it wrapping and me in one wave of vitality. He closed himself up in my arms. I carried him to the cleft. By then already, his eyes were as clear as a child's. Now going into some Egyptian music. You saved me, he said. I'm back safe. You came down suddenly, 
into the unclimbable pit into which I have fallen, where I was lying only pelted by the cruel men who looked down. Then I saw you stepping down, where there was no stair. I thought, this can't be true. You could only be one of them coming down to torture me more closely. I nearly killed you, but on touching you, I knew you had swept me out of the pit with you. I'm deadbeat and in fever and God, who I thought forgot me, knows when I had food. But I sank him, for he sent you, and therefore I'm sane. If he can make me sane sending you into the pit to fetch me up, he can still this fever and give me food, and if he chooses not, still I shall understand, for I am sane. No one comes back from madness to sanity in a flash without seeing as he passes out of hell the hand of God thrown open its gate. I thought his madness leaves him at this force which passes through me, and he sees the force which I feel, and sees it as is God. Almost trembling, I bent over him, filled with compassion, seeing him suddenly as God sees him. Again I felt that tide of vital warmth. He was stirring in his fever. I drew him into my arms again. I did not have to tell him. The fever is gone. We both knew it. He sighed. Madness. Fever. I believe God will do all, and even hunger in the wilderness shall bow to him. I saw then in a flash the whole way God had been leading me these two tremendous days. Here, with his divine art, was all summed up. I could feed this child as God had taught me to feed. I gave him a little water to drink washed them and told them to be still. The intense love and trust that lit his eyes as they followed me was God's proof that he too would be let live on the bread of the coming day. Then I gave him more water until his thirst was slaked, slaked, S-L-A-K-E-D. I covered his eyes with my hands and told him to rest. He was stirring in his fever. I drew him into my arms again. I did not have to tell him the fever is gone. We both knew it. He sighed. Madness, fever. I believe God will do all and even hunger in the wilderness shall bow to him. I saw them, saw then in a flash the whole way God had been leading me these two tremendous days. Here, with his divine art, was all summed up. I could feed this child as God had taught me to feed. I gave him a little water to drink, washed him, and told him to be still. The intense love and trust that lit my eyes as they followed me was God's proof that he too would be let live on the bread of the coming day. Then I gave him more water until his thirst was slaked. So I've repeated this bit. I covered his eyes with my hands and told him to rest. 
He sighed deeply, and his body drank in rest, while mine surged with the life that was pouring through it. After a little while, I rose from him and told him to open his eyes, but to lie still. I have found the breath of life, I told him. It can feed the body if you will draw it in as I teach you. The breathing of God is the bread of life. We breathed in the power around us together. At first I saw a faint wonder. Then I heard him sigh. The three names of the highest in sanity, in health, in strength. He proves his presence. After that he breathed fully and deeply and was satisfied. When we were both charged, I left him to sleep. The night is full of the glory of God. I see now my way. I was taught the spiritual feeling. Then this child has sent me and shows me at once triple revelation. Firstly, I am not to keep it to myself and preach from authority. Here is the way to the kingdom. All may learn and have proof of God's power and of their union with him. Secondly, this is my approach and power and credential, about which I was so anxious that I thought of daring God to let me dash myself to pieces or impose me on his people. I shall heal the insane and the sick. This is my proof of my bona fides. And thirdly, my message is just this way of showing men how to have union with their father and to find themselves thereby changed and recharged in spirit, in soul, in body. Have I not learnt all now? May not I return to my people preaching the kingdom? I will wait till tomorrow. Then, if all tests seem over, I will go. My poor child left me yesterday. He said he must go home. Would I not come with him and keep on healing all the other sick and wretched that he knew, even in his village? I have stayed. Suddenly, as I would almost have gone, some echo in the back of my mind said, Is that the way? You feared rightly putting the light under a bushel? Burying your newfound treasure in the desert again, leaving all the simple suffering to stumble onto their death in the dark, seeing you must now lead the blind. That was true, I see, the voice went on. You shunned, too, the spectacular plunge, the levitation miracle with which to catch the poor people's wandering eye and ear. You wouldn't be a magi magician any more than you'd conjure stones into the loads. Very well. Very good. You believe you see your way through the first barrier. The food barrier. You believe you have discovered how the body, really inspired by the soul which is drawing on God, may live when it is necessary 
by the mysterious drawing in of the breath of God. Perhaps you have made a remarkable psychophysical discovery. Quite likely, though as you are dead honest, you don't know how long it will work, or whether it is for everyone. You are also pretty certain you see your way through the second barrier. Two, how to put over your methods so men will really accept it for themselves. Neither bought by cheap bread, as Caesar buys them at Rome, nor by cheap show. A circus stunt which, if it proves anything to them, only proves their narrow temple prejudices. Their narrow world notions are right. But now you have cured the maniac of madness and fever and even stopped his hunger. You will on, you will, oh sorry, you will own you gave him ordinary water to drink. Now you are counting on this being your royal road to men's hearts. We'll allow you have, we'll allow you have a way open to the nervously wretched certainly, to the sick quite probably, to the hungry even possibly. But that's only half the battle. Think it out. All day long, I had been thinking it out to the bitter end. That voice is right. I can touch the poor, the helpless, those who have lost almost everything, those who have almost nothing to lose. I can tell them and show them why and how they may live sane, well, rich, with eternal richness. But they are only part of the world. The rest, those who have power, wealth, authority, Will they let me teach and heal, make rich these children? I have not been reared in courts or lived in great cities, but I know there is a side of the world where power rules, where men dream not of health and happiness, not even of wealth and goods, but of power only. For that dream they sell all they have in gaining and crushing the whole world lose their own soul. So they can only hold and rule by violence, for they have no other power. Such men who have broken the eternal law of being, they then strive to be the enforcers of the earth, the imposers of order, the executioners of justice. I hear the voice again, as lucid as though a wise man of the world had troubled to seek me out and tell me how best my gifts might be used. Not for a desert community, not for a single people on the rim of an empire, but for that whole empire, for all of the world. I must, in honesty, let it tell me all. It may be here is advice from God how best I can use the message and the method he has given me. There is no doubt a humble mind as yours can be taught and can see things as they actually are. But many a narrow fanatic, puffed with pride, will dash himself to pieces against facts. The world needs your gospel. You are the realist idealist it wants. 
you show knew all that by seeing that the Jews themselves are only a provincial little people. Your message is for the world, not for one race, let alone a sect such as the Essenes. Now, if you were going to the Essenes, you could prove your bona fides of bread. If to the Jews, by a sudden descent of Jehovah's Messenger, the Lord they look for suddenly coming to his temple, all pat and prophetic. But these little certificates won't give you the world, and as you, with your wonderful frankness, have recognised, simply curing a number of invalids and making them happily convinced that the world is soon going to be changed into a world of love and compassion, where everyone accepts, and the whole discharges unlimited liability. Well, you've seen the men in power are not simply going to laugh at you when you do, do when you do that. They are shrewd enough to recognise your greatness. They won't laugh at you when you make things work by other means than they control. They'll lynch you. You're the realist. You've got a power of creative love and it works wonders, real wonders, with the proletariat. Because they are good at the core. Because they've been too simple, fine and pure to succeed in the world as it is. You can get right home to them and so you will save all humanity that's all that's that's at all savable and deserves saving. But and it's here your clear mind is going to guide your wonderful heart, you won't be let get at the proletariat. What's worse, but just as true, they, the simple distracted people, will be turned against you. It will be they ghastly fought, who will be engineered to attack you. They will be told you are a wrecker, a self-seeker, a charlatan, and your good deeds won't be able to catch up with the manufactured ill-fame that will be sent out ahead of you. Now that you have come to the point where you see you have come to save the masses, you mustn't, you can't, you won't shrink from saving them. The sheep run to their shepherd, but it's not enough for him simply to gather them round him. He must beat back and kill the wolves. It's clear you will never shrink from risk to yourself and look at the amazing appositeness of this moment. Here you are, immensely gifted, with real superhuman powers. You only want to serve mankind. And here is mankind gathered in this generation at your feet. They have been driven to the feet of their good shepherd by the wolves. You can speak to and heal the sheep. The wolf does not, cannot understand. Him you will strike. The sun sets. Look out across the world. This vast level beams make an avenue from the ultimate ocean to your feet across the vastest empire the world has ever seen. 
it lies at your feet this evening. Emperors can rule men's bodies, but they cannot enlighten and save their souls. Prophets and saints cannot rule. You coming here and now, by what you are. Can at least, can at last do both. That you, the carpenter of a mean village on that empire's eastern rim, should come to be called, as you will be divine protector of the empire. Well, that would have stirred any other heart, unwisely perhaps, but how naturally. For surely it is God's recognition that you are his beloved son. Your stock has had to live quietly. Why? Because you are descended from David. And even now, after all these generations, such is his name that he that to be of his stock is almost a dangerous distinction. Think what your famous royal ancestor would have felt if he had found himself not king of Israel, but king of hated Egypt as well, hated Syria, hated N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-
a man who has insight into both worlds. You're going to save this world by understanding how alone it can be saved. By understanding how to use its nature. By understanding the actual means whereby it alone can be altered. You are going to link ideals with reality as no one has done before. You are going to recognise both and equally that the kingdom of heaven must come here and now. Time has come. Though so that heaven can only be on earth if earth, which is physical, and men, who are earthly, are ruled and made obedient by physical means. God is in heaven. Man is on earth. In bringing God down to earth, you, the mediator, will with one hand hold out the lovely vision of universal love, and with the other you will make the dream come true by backing it with irresistible force. For those who are gentle, simple and wounded and who can, as could that poor maniac, look upon you and at once recognise, because of their great need, that you are indeed their only saviour and healer. To them you are indeed the good shepherd. But to the crafty and to the cruel, the violent and the dark who do not want you, and will keep the weak and the broken from coming to you. These are the wolves. Against them the shepherd is implacable. They can only understand irresistible violence, and to them you must, and must because you love the mass of mankind, who are the wolves' victims. You must, and will be the scourge, the dread, invincible destroyer, the judge, the executioner, their utter destruction. There can be no terms between you and them. You must wrest the kingdom from them. And by coming here on earth, you have shown you have set the task and will beat them on their own ground with their own weapons. <coughs> it is God's will. He has brought through Caesar the whole world as one unit and laid it at your feet. You know he does not work miracles when his servants can do the further work. He creates the opportunity, this world empire. He then ordains that you be born at the moment that empire is consolidated. Embracing all the western world and at the exact spot where you overlook, westward, this new unity of mankind, which brings at this moment at your feet, that the sun's rays at this moment wash your feet, and as the great sea surges along the coast of the holy land. <coughs> and look eastward from where you stand at the focus of time and on the watershed of the earth's areas. As night comes on, and the sun of the rest sink of the west sinks. Look at the stars rising to beckon you east also. The east is equally yours. The Magi, who, at your birth, came because the stars told them you belong to the east as much as to the west. The Magi are holding the Eastern Empire. The Persian, 
for you to clean. Come, kick the kingdoms of the world, the power and the glory, for they are yours, at the rightful price that you recognise. You are not merely prophet and healer, but above all a king. All this is yours, if you will be brave enough to recognise reality and shun deceitful dreams, the drugs of illusion and fancy, the easy belief that the world can be saved and your detachment, your ineffective innocency preserved, that you can stay on a mountain uplifting people, praying and preaching. Not only the gentle and disappointed, the weak and the ill will listen. But the iron emperors, the soldiers of steel, the immovable men of gold will also obey. Pharaoh would not let Israel go till the plagues finally killed the firstborn. If Moses had so to strike, can you, against greater foes, do less? He only wished for the people to be let go. You are going to make the pharaohs themselves submit, or you have failed. All this is yours, because the first great captain who had your ideals will found the kingdom of God on earth. Look how close the Maccabees went to doing so. Isaac became corrupt. Had he been a noble as Judas, all would have gone well, and the kingdom would have spread. And the Maccabees were not of the house of David. That's why your family has had to live so quietly all these years. <coughs> the promises of God are to your stock, your family, and are all fulfilled in you. If you move, the people will follow. The magnetism which heals the maniac will consolidate the masses, astound and dismay the, the oppressors. You need have no scruples. Every day, don't the Romans commit some brutality which calls for heaven's vengeance? And many are losing faith because heaven remains silent. We know why. Heaven is waiting for you. You alone cannot blame heaven or try and shift responsibility on it. God has given you power Opportunity, right of descent, strategic position, all this is yours, yours to end the age-long wrong and to set up eternal justice at the price of a scruple. Yet you are right, it is a big price for a man as noble as you. The common man is held back, is tested and is found waiting by his physical fear. He dreads defeat, torture, death. These are nothing to you. Your test, the lower, uh, could not understand. But I understand and see it at as see it is the severest. You have to sacrifice scruple. Yes, for little, little peace of mind, for the sake of mankind and of their peace forever. You must love your neighbour more than you love your own matchless moral record. <laughs> You must be prepared to be misunderstood, maligned, to do apparent temporary wrong. There is for you, great soul, only one commandment to love man more than you love even your own higher self. 
No, no, that is wrong. There you are forcing a lie upon me. There is not only one commandment, there are two. A man I may and must love as myself, but God and his highest law more than I love even my fellow. That must mean, it can only mean, that there are some things I cannot do even to save my neighbour. <coughs> you will probably, you will probably perish nobly in any case. In either choice, a man such as you, so gifted and so selfless, that too, you know as well as I, there's not one chance in 100 million that he will come again. And at such a moment of world opportunity, the choice then is perish and save the world or perish and leave it unsaved. I cannot do evil that good may come. Not if it means the world's salvation. Not even then will you soil your private moral records. It is not as if there were any other way. You know the world is real. And you must show it by real acts, by forcible behaviour, that your ideal is true. No other choice is given you. Your courage is not in doubt. Quite probably many that oppose you, when they see you, can make your ideal work. When you succeed in rule, will come over to you. By meeting them halfway, you will win over myriads of doubters. The great need... Their poor little faith helped. Their little faith needs just this sign to rouse it. Their smouldering devotion requires this breath of decision to blow it to a flame. To each man you must speak in his tongue. To the sick healing. To the mad sanity. To the unhappy serenity. To the powerful, the proof that an idealist can win has force and successfully applies it. Caesar himself is a man, yes, to be frank, a far less gifted man than you. This, you know, is not flattery but fact. Caesar rules by accident or rather by the decree of a god he knows not. So he can only rule as he can. Show him you can rule as he can understand. He needs help, he needs teaching. In his heart he knows he does not know. He has a soul to be saved. When he sees that you have power, he will be your vassal. You may teach him also the way of life, and with him won over your reign, which has to begin with judgment, will carry on in peaceful mercy. You cannot be so selfish as to let all these people die, because you are too clean to plunge into the swamp in which they lie, suffocating, and drag them out. Make this one bargain of reality, and the world is yours. For this is reality. The world is thus, and only recognising its nature can we save it. No, the world is not in reality this. The ideal is not a shadow. The world uh, is as much God's as is heaven. And his law runs here. His law of love is as in heaven, so here on earth. To act otherwise is to betray him. 
persuade me in this was sorry to persuade me in this way is blasphemy it is the supreme lie that voice is the voice of the lie which has been from the beginning of time the deadly illusion and deceit God is here sustaining and ordering this world yes in its worst wrongs waiting with the divine patience of a father for his children to understand. When you talk of realism, of the ideal being shadow, you are denying God and you know it. You are not so much tempting me as trying, as you always have, to revolt against him, to banish his power, to, fit, to defeat his plan, blot out his creative love with the spirit of your deadly denial. Be gone, you shadow of death, you who dare say you know reality, the ultimate fact. The ultimate fact, the reality is God, whom you can never know. I know him. Go. It was like a real presence, as it argued. I saw things as under that deadly shadow. What common sense, what realism his words seemed. I hardly felt it was evil. It was so inevitable, so right, so decreed. And I was the person who by fussy self-admiration of my principles was standing in the way. Now that the cloud is gone, and the light is back. I see how that miasma almost corroded my soul. But it was only an echo and a shadow of my own doubt. It had no reality. Its very words were my own wish to serve unlimitedly, unlimitedly, turned into megalomaniac dreams of world power. Realism, whether good or bad, there was no actuality in such fantasy. Shall I return from the desert tonight? There is no further preparation needed, and my message requires no organisation, no programme. It is not a political campaign. Why delay longer choosing and planning? I can begin tomorrow morning in the first village with the first wayfarer. The moon is still up. I will start now. It's almost as clear as day, and I shall not have to wait till tomorrow for my first contact. Now, as I come down this long slope to the river, I can see the ford. The quiet, spreading dark water is being woken into rhythms of light. Someone must be crossing it in my direction. A late traveller, or an early one, perhaps wishing to avoid the day's heat. He will be taking the little used track, skirting the desert side of the stream. Perhaps he is going down to seek the Essenes, fleeing his house and all its pressures and distractions when those who would hold him back are asleep. Perhaps, but no matter, there is no chance nor accident. It does not matter who he is, he comes my way. He has caught sight of me, too. 
He is standing on the river beach. He hasn't turned down the bank. He is waiting for me. This is no vagrant madman. I can see that by his poise. There is resolution here and purpose. I will ask him whither he is going. If it is to the Essenes, I can tell him of them, and perhaps persuade him to come back to mankind with me instead. If not, I can at least accompany him, accompany him on his path. He may be glad of a companion in the night, and if he wants me to go out of my direction a couple of miles, or go back on my tracks, why not? My way will be wherever men wander. All paths so trodden lead home, lead to God. Friend, are you looking for the track down to the low sea, and maybe to the Essenes? The Essenes! Yes, I know the way. I have lived there. So you, so you've lived with the Essenes. Do you know them? Yes, and what's more, the light's good enough for me to know you too. How do you know me? They certainly don't give you much to eat. You're a deal thinner than when I used to see you, and older. One doesn't forget that brow and those eyes. It's the family mark and stamp. Though with you the dye has bitten right through. That's political cattle, if you like. No need for banner, throne, and diadem. If the authenticity is there in the living image. What are you meaning? Why have you been skulking down by the dead water? We've been on the lookout for you for months. Oh yes, we've been watching you. And you were shaping well. We've got our eyes everywhere, and you were at the top of our list. You can't be so up in the air as not to know or notice that. Why the old Herodian fox and the procurator? Procurator Wolf, I'll watch more carefully than you. We've always someone on their trial, trail waiting like a fish spear, to strike the moment they move into striking distance. We know where they are going before their gatekeepers are told. And you've had to trailer too. Your observance couldn't not be with those eyes. You're known to be. We've reports from our informants. We note everything. Yes, you're no fool. If you were, you'd be no use to us, even being who you are. We don't want a figurehead, but you've got the head and the figure, the cast and the mind in the cast, and that's the combination, and we mean to have it. If you know so much about me, why didn't you know where I was or what I was doing? Simon mis misled us. A good fellow, one of us, up to the hilt. But, as you're not one of them, you won't be offended when I say he's only a Galilean. Galilean. 
He said you were on the run. The party's been watching you since at 12 you gave your down at heels parents to slip. One of us reported how you, only a kid, were asking those old badgers and jackals of the temple questions they didn't like. Stirring up those old groundhogs. Yes, we've associates that can go right into the high priest's circle. Just as we have agents in the governor's domestic quarters and watchers in Herod's bedchamber. So we knew that for long you'd been going in our direction. We only had to wait and you'd come to us. We needn't fetch you. You were therefore only under slight surveillance. I say, Simon who reports for Nazareth told that he had heard you had been using pretty freely party language. He went over himself from Capernaum, that's Caper and then N-A-U-N for the just to drop a hint to you to go slow, tell you to wait and see if you were ready to be told how ready we are, and he found you gone. Well, the party cell decided that was all to the good. As soon as you came back, it was decided when reported to headquarters, you should be told and could join up. But you didn't come back. We knew that you must be somewhere down about here. You'd be, you'd be last reported making for the desert. So finally it was decided I should go and look for you. Who are you? Never you mind. Names are nonsense and a dangerous nuisance in an anonymous order. I have a dozen for my different posts. One when I'm a Roman Imperial Irregular. One when I'm an earnest Pharisee, and a third when I'm a blade with the young Herodians, and so on. And I am each of these parts when I play each of them. What do you want from me? Wait a minute, we'll come to that soon enough. It's sufficient now that I make you an offer, a firm one, and I am going to make it. What is it? We'll have to go back a bit so that you can understand it. You're a lucky young fellow. If ambition played any part in our cause, which it doesn't, I'd be envious of your luck and chance or destiny or the way inevitable history has cast you for your role. I said I'd know you anywhere. In little while, Everyone will know you everywhere, though you may be precious hard to find. So really, we didn't mind your being behind the scenes for a moment. But there's behind the scenes and behind the scenes. Or being behind the scenes, there are places which are strategic and places which are just off the map. You mustn't then stay any longer out here. We've got plenty of hideouts for you, right at the centre. Often the most hidden place.
is right inside the hollow boards that make the platform of a throne. You're of the real blood royal, while all these others, what are they? The chief priests are just trustees whose whole authority comes because the people believe they are waiting for you. Herod, of course, is simply the Roman puppet, and Pilate's authority runs just as far as a Roman javelin can be flung. Everyone, Hebrew, Greek, Roman, knows that. If the people rose, there wouldn't be a Roman or a Herodian left alive in six hours. The country is solid behind us. We know it. We've worked at it for years. The mine is packed. The train laid. What sect are you talking of? The Zealot Organisation. Its whole system is now complete. As I've shown you, we have our intelligence, a perfect web all over the land. We have our courts and secret justice and executions more certain than the Romans. We have our shock troops, men of steel who take their orders implicitly and stick at nothing to see them through to the last jot of the letter and the last drop of blood. Men 100% loyal and 100% efficient. We can strike down almost anyone we like. Our long knife hangs over Herod's dreams and makes the procurator's wife have nightmares. But just getting an individual here and there isn't enough. We mustn't by random shooting unmasked our ambush till we have the enemy altogether in it. We're indifferent individuals. I don't hate either the wolf or the fox. I kill them like vermin. We're out to smash an organisation. And in the only way. So it all turns on a concerted rising. The people, I've said, are ready. The organisation of the party has made them ready. And is itself ready to pass them down the world. The hour is just going to strike. Only one thing, one piece is not lacking. No, we've got that ready too. But needing to be moved into place. A cornerstone. A coping. And there the people will stand. And oppression will slide off from them as the tide from a well-reared breakwater. The people must have a leader. One of themselves, one of the royal race. I am not such a king. I do not wish to have a crown. You need not trouble yourself about that. You need not, you need have no shrinking from receiving the masses' homage. It didn't offer to you, but to the idea of the sacred people incarnated in you. You are going to stand for the great comrade. Simply the man who steps out first. They'll see themselves in you. You'll be really their chief servant. I have, out here, had bigger dreams than that. Then you have been thinking along these lines. I was right. 
I said you had gone off to think things out. Beside my dream, what you offer is only a provincial fancy. Well, have it as you will. Best to take large views, perhaps. And who knows, it might well lead to a world turnover. Rome is none too sure of itself. But you'll see, if you're at all practical, it must start anyhow here. Here and here only is your opportunity. You're less than a nobody anywhere else. Gone into ambient music, Buddha's Lounge. Here you have a peculiar topical valley, that Davidic look. I don't know if you have the practical cunning of Jesse's son, maybe. All the better if you have. But I do know you have the appearance of the hero king. And that's what we want. We've had reports too that you can speak, can hold people, grip them. It's a gift that crowd magnetism. You may have nothing else. Well, we can substitute for all your other possible inadequacies. We can get together a staff for you that will guide you in all practical affairs. If you make as you well can, just the inaugural appearances and speeches. So if you want to go far, or if you are content to stay number one in the homeland, doesn't really matter. We can leave that for later discussions. Here and now, it all comes right down to the same thing. You must start here. Whether your aim is Jerusalem or Rome itself. I am at something as far above Rome as Rome is beyond Nazareth or Bethlehem. Look here. Is this magnaloquence? 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 That's M A G N I L. O-Q-U-E-N-C-E Magnaloquence Or have you been sunstruck or moonstruck in the desert? Have you been seeing visions? I have been seeing visions. Leave them now. This is a firm offer I'm bringing you. No more firm than my faith. What's that? that the means you are using will never establish that kingdom of messianic righteousness for which the people long. We're practical. We have to be. There is no other way. we tried everything else. We're the one party that can really do something against the tyranny. All the others only talk and compromise. We do neither, and we alone can and will strike home. Yes, you will be able to strike. You are single-minded, 
You have faith of a sort, and you will move mountains. Because of you, the holy Mount Zion will be literally dismantled, and its crest thrown down into the very valley of Hinnom. That's H-I-N-N for November, O-M for mother. Hinnom. The temple will vanish, leaving hardly one stone on another of all its vast buildings. The sacred vessels and objects, too holy for men to see, will be cast out and carried off as common loot to a Roman triumph. The holy people become a swarm, unable to work and create, because its hive has been shattered and gone up in flames. Yes, that is more faith than Sadducee. S-A-D-D-U-C-E and Pharisee and Herodian all together could summon. But because you wholly lack love, it will profit you nothing. It will utterly defeat your purpose and frustrate your courage and devotion. Then you're a defeatist. You refuse to help though you are called on, though you are needed. Yes, I refuse. And I know the price. At this moment, in this dusk, I know where your mind is and where your hand. You said truly, I am a king, and kings who won't come to the thrones held out for them are too dangerous. I know to be left at large. I am a king because I have the royal discernment. I read your mind as a king must. You are thinking at this moment, why wait? Better now. And your hand is on the hilt of your long zealot knife. You pause at that. Why not go back with an adequate report that you told the party secrets to the man called on to serve, that he refused service, and so you close the matter in the only efficient way, liquidating a life which had become an obstacle, knowing too much and refusing to act as required on that knowledge? Yes, you are a king, right enough. That's the kingly mind, to read the subject's thoughts. But I'd have killed you nonetheless had you only the king's insight. I can't because you have the king's heart as well. I know men. I've been organising all my life. It doesn't cost me. It never has. Even an extra pulse beat to strike out a life which fails to serve the cause. Who dies if Israel lives? But I can't strike at Israel itself. Then you know my words and my way are right. No, no, they can't be. But then all my life, all my sacrifices, all the blood we've shred, shed is vain. And we've had to be tough. And we will have to be tougher. We've only begun the killing. I don't want to be lily-livered or a false apologist saying that the struggle in itself is nice or noble or in any way decent. I will be honest and face the price we pay, but we must pay it. There's no other choice. We have already paid a heavy first instalment, however. Too heavy to wipe it out is simply a bad debt, a false start. It can't be in vain, and it would have to be if you were right. Then why not kill me? It would only 
it will be only one more small step to the great goal. One more drop in the great jar which must be filled to the brim for the blood sacrifice which you say our Father in Heaven, the Supreme Ruler of the Earth requires. <clears throat> I can't kill you. I'm simply not a good enough party member to be able to do it. You're wrong and maybe I know little about him. You easily call Father. You will wreck our cause, you could. Then you should kill me. I shan't resist. Anyhow, a man who has fasted 40 days is not a difficult execution for one fit, fed and armed and used to the task. Don't remind me. You know that too. You see into the heart as long as there is a corner of it not yet turned to stone. I always hated that necessary task, and so I always did it myself just to harden myself and be, by each execution of a weakling or a false member, more certain of my own strength and devotion. Each time they cried for mercy or worse, died with dumb courage. I knew I had cut myself off further from any return. That's why I am in the key position I now hold. That's why you know it. I will send after you with this offer, this ultimatum. Why should you spare me when you were able to deny mercy to me? When I am, you say, more dangerous? <coughs> you may wreck our cause. You might. You might, if I don't strike, come over, and then we might, much more surely, we might succeed. I'll take the risk. It's too big not to take. That chance that experience might show you, our way is the only way. I'll risk my life. I'm risking it. If they knew, they'd be right to put me out instead. I'll wager my life. That you're, that you're come to it, and with you we'll win. No, I will never come to you. You must, you will come to me, and to him that sent me. Never. Never is no word for men. That is the one word which God himself will not speak. For he is the eternal, the ever. He refuses to foreclose. He remains always open and waiting for his child to return. He will wait. If man chooses to the end of time so that we shall come to him at last. That's only your private theology. If there is a God then either he works only through us and we must work as we can. A As he alone permits us, or well, he is far too patient to be endured. I care for men and their immediate suffering. And so you and so you kill and must go on killing them. You reign by terror and death to give peace, trust and life. I won't wrangle with a lawyer king. I've failed to execute, but I need not fail to dismiss and banish. I refuse to listen to treason. And I will stop your mouth with its fair treacherous words, with one clear statement for you to consider, a statement of fact. I know men, 
and because I know your type as very rare, I have spared you. I'll tell you, as clear as a mathematical calculation, the history is all necessity. It's all inevitable. That's why I know and why I have to act as I do. I'll tell you what is going to happen to you. You're going back into the world. Yes, I have found my message and I am on my way to tell the people. You are the first I have met. Good. So I can tell you about others like me. But I am one of the people whom you will have to meet and who will want to know what you are up to. You will find most people just indifferent. They're too busy or too harassed to go and hear any organiser except for a casual few minutes. But a few will stick. Most of your people will think you're crazy or swollen headed. A carpenter's son in Nazareth setting up as a teacher while just south over the hills we have Jerusalem itself, traffic jammed with every kind of scribe and scholar. But one or two will take to you just because you are. They take it, one of them, their small town boy against the world. You'll have a little inside group then, one that will hang on, listen and learn, whom you can instruct and doctrinate. Yes, there must always be a teaching for those who would learn all that they may, to give their lives, to spread the word of life. Very well, your little group will travel with you and grow. Then, here's the point of what I'm telling you. Probably someone who really means business, someone our organisation may have overlooked, will join your gang. He'll be an outsider, pretty certainly. He hasn't joined because you're of his village and district. He's joined because he wants something definitely. He won't be enthusiastic <coughs> or flushed with your fine words, full to windy content with your clever little illustrations and telling stories. He'll be efficient, businesslike, an organiser. You think he would like you think he would look after the funds? Yes, he might very well if you ever had any, while the rest looked after the phrases of which there'll be pl a plenty. He'll be a practical man, your one true find, and I'm counting on that man to prove my reprieve has been right policy. He'll win you back over to the party. You'll join us together and bring along too the best part of the north. No. I must disprove your wishful thinking. He will not. Do not spare me on false prophecy. Then I won't spare you at least the truth. Maybe he won't bring you over. But I'm content that if he doesn't bring you over, I foretell. For I know men. I tell you, he'll turn you over. The first real man you get outside your little mutational admiration Galilee gang, that man will see through you to the cause, and the moment you show a sign of failing, the cause will denounce you. Betray his leader and friend? 
that's the kind of sentiment which plays into the hands of the feet. He's the only really loyal one of the whole bunch. He can give up a sentimental friendship to one misguided man as soon as he stands in the way of the service and deliverance of all. That's true courage, true service. Do you want to place yourself above party criticism to make loyalty to your person more than devotion to the cause and the people? If you do, you're just a tyrant in disguise seeking backstairs to a throne. Betrayal is betrayal by whatever name expediency may attempt to disguise it. Mere causatory. History will approve that man's quiet, calculated heroism. He will be one of the very few really brave men. So I'll leave you to him, and I've prepared his work for him. You'll know him, David's son, when you see him. You'll know perhaps before he does, for you have insight. I put you wise, and he has to learn and decide painfully. You'll know the choice he said to offer you, positively the last offer. Goodbye, and one last word. Remember, when he turns you over, because he can't, He's failed to turn you back to us and your clear duty. He'll be turning you over to something beside which this will then seem to you truly a mis misery cord. That's a M I S E R I C O R D. With that, I saw his long knife flash in the gloom. He waved it as a farewell and his dark figure lost itself among the dark trees by the river. So the dark echo of my thoughts has found actual voice and form. That was a real man with a firm and sharp otter, as firm as his hand and as sharp as his knife. And I have declined. He can sign my death warrant, he has, with the non-saving clause that I submit Within the stated time, I am given one more chance. Quite easily, he can throw in my path the cold-blooded enthusiast who will be the trigger to fling me to my death. The plot is cast. I see it is a real choice I have taken here, and I have taken it to the nationalist zealot as to the Seducee and Pharisee. The answer is the same. No. I see now my path. I have taken the three steps, each leading me to a clearer height. First, I know that my mission is not to a sect of Eremites, but to ordinary, ordinary mankind. And I know that I have a method revealed to me whereby these common people may live, if they will, the eternal life even now. A way of living whereby each day they may grow until they see that here and now is heaven, the kingdom of the Father, where the daily struggle for food and cover will cease to be their overmastering anxiety and compulsion. 
where they will realise their eternal life in each other, united in the love which brought them forth and gathers them home again. Then I have learned that these simple people are not to be startled into attention by spectacular tricks. What I have to teach must, must, can, and will be accepted by them because in their souls they know what they need, what is the reality and the essential in all teaching of religion. Their spirits seeking after the living God whom they must worship in spirit and in truth. And these two steps culminate now, I see, in this third which I have now taken. I am sent to no sect, however high, to no nation, however chosen. I am sent to all mankind with nothing but the universal appeal of love and with the life that such a liberating love makes possible. I am sent not merely to the simple and the defeated, but to the clever and the successful and the desperately devoted fanatics also. They are all, as I am, children of God, needing the eternal life, and they can attain this only if I can show them the power and triumph of a love which can heal the sick, make sane the possessed, make serene and happy the wretched and the dying, and those whom the world believes have lost all. This cause can alone win, for, for so only may the veil between the temple and the eternal be lifted, and man again walk with God. I am the Son of God and the Son of Man, because this power focuses now in me, that I may lead all that will follow through the temptations I have gone through into the light. I go to lead the whole people of mankind, as Moses led his people through the sea of illusion and the tides of passion onto the firm earth of God's world, which will reveal, which will be revealed the moment we will cast aside the dream that on these tides we can have any rest. I will show them where their true home is, open and welcoming them. I will tell them this world is a bridge. Pass over it, but build no house upon it. As the sun set hours ago, I saw the world of all the empires stretching away at my feet. I refused the earthly crown and the temporal conquest. Though, in the hours of doubt, <coughs> I saw how I might, in this opportunity of space and time, at once have headed an organised society, meeting out justice to the oppressor, and then have launched a religion of inspiration, and the sword which could have swept the world, coursing down the empty arteries with which imperialism has linked up the world's peoples, as new wine waste bases through a thirsty frame. Now, as the night deepens, and all is hushed, and the present moment of action is stilled, I would see as widely down time as I have seen over space. I myself 
may well fail. Further, my faith in the hands of those who would spread it may have a worldly success far more tragic than my personal failure. Still, the voice of my Father will be speaking to all who will hear him. The faith in his love will not fail. No, not if my faith is as mocked as I. No, not if after I have found, after I have been worshipped with the lips of emperors and my word and message from the Father made of no effect that arises from this desert, the succeeding world prophet, who, afraid to be thought a failure, will listen to the false voice and take to the sword. Then such a faith may sweep away the sham which will be called mine and destroy also the Persian Magians. M-A-G-I-A-N-S. Persian Magians Rome was too weak to shatter. And my church hemmed in and cut off from the spirit of life, disputing with sterilising bitterness over the letter. Men who call themselves mine will torture and kill one another for differing about who I am. Such is to be the outward fate of my invention. Dare I then go on? Yes, but this moment I may see as my father sees. He knows his own and knows that whom I am sent. I shall gather to him. I am no prophet of the sword, nor one who appears blazing in the sky. I am to lead men through this world to my Father's kingdom. I go to prepare a place for them. God's apparent indifference is indeed his patience. Each one of us, though it take to the age's end, must come of his own free choice. God is ever. Therefore, man may not say never. At this hour, I am part of the eternal patience. I will do and suffer as it decrees. I am content so to serve. Always behind this apparent world, interpenetrating it, is the supreme presence of the creative love which sends me out for this hour to start this great venture and then to the return. To return and watch with it, with all its divine foreknowledge and inner understanding, the unfolding of the supreme design, the design which can only take on its meaning viewed from the station of eternity. I go, for the time being I see, for the time being the confusing clouds of illusion, the tempter voice, the world's practical schemings, all vanish, and the stars are sure, clear and encompassing. I go down into the valley, there that voice will return and confuse me. The dust will rise and my guiding stars will, for moments, be lost. I shall again find these doubts which I have laid, wrapped thickly round me. I shall hear men asking me to guide, and I shall ask myself, have they come to betray? I must often hesitate and slip. But I have taken my choice. 
And after three years of actual effort, three years for these three days of desperate mental struggle, I shall come again. When it seems that I must have failed, and the accusing voice is true, that I have ruined my cause and myself, I shall discover myself once more lifted up, looking over the peoples into the level sunset. The darkness will lift, the deadly voice will dwindle, the anguish of exhaustion, death and defeat will sink away. I shall say, as I can say now, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend this spirit. And that, my friends, is Gerald Herbs, A Dialogue in the Desert.